To start the sermon today, I want to tell you, like I have been doing, I want to tell a story that's going to help us to connect to our passage of Scripture today. I want to tell you um, about a special group that uh, this, this group uh, gathered between, it was the early 1930s and late 1949. And um, this was an informal gathering of like-minded individuals who came together, who were very, very different from one another. And this group would call themselves the Inklings, the Inklings, and there was never more than 19 members in the group, um, or yeah, never more than 19 members in the group, and never more than 12 at a time. In fact, they kept this gathering small on purpose. And um, they met weekly to collaborate, to help each other, and essentially, to change the world. The two most notable people in the group who were not known at the time were C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. We have a picture here of some of the members of the group of Inklings that met together. And it was this small community of people that forged these men into absolute giants, giants that captured the imagination of the world through the stories they told, and through the stories they told spread the message and the values of Jesus. And it was the Inklings that was the foundation to some of the greatest stories uh, in our times. So The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, written by Tolkien, and it is pronounced, uh, a lot of people say Tolkien, it's actually pronounced Tolkien which I recently learned, so I was making that same mistake as well, Tolkien. Uh, but also the Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, and of course the famous Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, came out of this group. And it was miraculous that they even started meeting in the first place, and more miraculous that they continued because they were so different from one another. Tolkien wrote that the Inklings was an amusing group, although contentious. Regarding uh, Charles Williams, one of the other members of the group, Tolkien said that they liked each other enough, but he found his writings to be distasteful and ridiculous. He said that his mythologies were not his favorite. He didn't particularly like his mythologies. And C.S. Lewis said of Charles Williams that he looked like a monkey. They rarely saw eye to eye on things. Uh, one time, uh, regarding the, the conflict in the Lord of the Rings, regarding the conflict between uh, Gandalf and Salmon, uh, is that how you say it, Salmon? I don't know how you said that name, but anyway, between the conflict there between uh, Gandalf and Salmon, they, uh, C.S. Lewis gave Tolkien some feedback about how to improve that section of the book, and Tolkien commented that it was one of the rare occasions that Lewis's feedback was actually useful. Tolkien said that Lewis had some oddities to him and that he could be irritating at times. But he said, of course, that makes sense because he's an Irishman. He said that Lewis was not a professional clown, but a natural one. Of all of Lewis's writings, there was only one book that Tolkien actually appreciated. Lewis was taller, he was louder and rounder, and uh, had a red complexion to him. Tolkien was short, or shorter than, than, than Lewis, and he was quieter, more slender, and paler 
Lewis had a booming voice and a robust sense of humor, but he had a bit of an overbearing personality at times, and he dressed very casually with a, a floppy hat and a tweed coat, while Tolkien, on the other hand, was somebody who was actually very courteous, very kind individual, very, would graciously enter rooms, and was always impeccably dressed, had shiny shoes and embroidered vests. Very different individuals. It said that C.S. Lewis was direct, but Tolkien was elusive. Uh, C.S. Lewis had broad interests, but Tolkien had narrow interests. One time, Lewis commented that Tolkien was an unmethodical man because of their failure to write and publish a book together, which was Tolkien's fault. On their first encounter, Tolkien doesn't even mention it in his journals, but Lewis, uh, this is the first impression that Lewis had of Tolkien. He says this. He says that, that Tolkien was a smooth, pale, fluent little chap. No harm in him, only needs a smack. <laughs> Over time, Tolkien actually felt closer to Lewis than Lewis did to Tolkien. In fact, when Lewis got married, he didn't even tell his friend about the wedding, and Tolkien did not approve of Lewis's wife, thought it was a strange relationship. When the Inklings finally came to an end, people lamented the separation between Lewis and Tolkien. Even to this day, people have deep regrets and sadness about the way things seemed to end. And this can happen sometimes in friendships and relationships. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is history giving us a proper account? Because something happened several years after this that told the world something different about their friendship and about the Inklings. Now, I'm going to pause the story there, and I want to tell you at the end of the sermon what happened in their relationship. We'll get back to it, and we're going to explore how it relates to our sermon today. So, we're in this series that we're just going to continue on with today called The Real Jesus, where we're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And this is a long-term series. We're doing it in big chunks. So I think this is sermon 16 today. Uh, you can catch up with previous sermons at tri.church slash Mark, M-A-R-K. And uh, we have to look at the Jesus of Scripture because that's the only Jesus there is. That's the Jesus who his friends knew and his friends wrote about. And so if you want to know somebody, you've got to, you've got to talk to their friends and find out what do their friends say about them. And so that's why we look at the gospel. So let's pray and then let's read. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your life. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have come to bring us together. Lord, even in our darkest moments and deepest tragedies, Lord, that you have come to bind us together with you and with each other. I pray today that you would remind us of that and that you would do that in us through your spirit and through your word. And Lord, just if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, bring them in. And for all, the, all of us suffering and in sadness, Lord, touch our hearts today. Give us a little bit of strength to carry on, to understand a bit more, to rest in you a bit more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark 3, verse, starting in verse 13 talking about Jesus. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. 
And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangeres, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is God's word. So Jesus came to change the world, to rid the world of evil, and in the most surprising, unexpected way, he chose these 12 goons to do it. This has to be a divine plan, because there's no other way, there's no other chance for it to work other than the fact that God is going to do something amazing through these people's lives. Jesus goes up the mountain, and he calls these 12 men to follow him, to be with him. This is the apprenticeship model of discipleship. This is the relational model of discipleship. Jesus saying, you're not just going to sit down in a classroom and learn some theology. You're going to be with me, and I'm going to show you through a relationship. I'm going to have to embed the message of grace into your heart so that you can turn around and teach that message of grace to other people, to the world. And so we take on the mantle of Jesus. We take on the same approach of Jesus. We call others into this discipleship, this apprenticeship, this hands-on activity where you, you, you roll up your sleeves and you get dirty and messy in ministry and in life and you, just, you don't just wait for a bunch of years spending a bunch of money figuring out how to, someone to, an expert to tell you how to do it, you just jump in and you start doing it and it affects your heart because you're in a relationship as you're doing it. So as you get called into ministry, as you get called into Christian life, what you're really being called into is a relationship with other Christians where you give and receive and you're shaped and molded to spread the message of Jesus, to embed the message of the grace of Jesus. It's the only way it works. It's the best way it works. It's the way Jesus shows us how it works. And he chose 12. 12 is a significant number in many regards. I mean, social scientists will probably tell us that, hey, it's kind of 12 is a magic number in terms of, you know, any bigger than 12 and the group kind of loses social cohesion. You can't really know everyone in the group. Uh, but 12 is kind of that magic number, if you will. It appears kind of historically in many places, 12 is important. But it's more than just that. That's not, I mean, that's a reason that Jesus wants to have intimate, close relationships with his followers. Of course, that's part of the dynamic, but it's way more than that. It goes very, runs very deep. That back in the old scriptures in the Old Testament, the first big chunk of the Bible, there were 12 tribes, or you could say 12 families. So a guy called Jacob had 12 sons who became fathers of tribes. You could say they were princes in one sense. And these local tribes, yes, they have, you know, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So yes, they've got this national identity. They're Israelites. That's the big identity. But then they're broken down into these 12 sub 
units, these 12 tribes with different, slightly different variations and personalities to them and identities to them. So you've got the you know, tribe, tribe of, of Levites, right? Or the, the tribe of Benjamin. Different examples of different tribes in the nation of Israel. And there's amazing divine wisdom in God structuring it this way. Amazing divine wisdom in God doing it this way. To have a almost like a federal identity, if you will, to have that overarching identity that we're all under, like we all come from Israel, we'll, we'll, we'll trace our, our heritage back to one source, to one point, but also we have this subset, these tribes that we belong to, and in belonging to these tribes, it's, it's smaller. There's something smaller about it, there's something more intimate about it, that we're in each inner individual family, that we're therefore more connected and more accountable in this family, and it is the the, the, the variety and the connection between the tribes where the magic begins to happen within the tribe and the connection between the tribes where the magic begins to happen, where the interchange happens, where the differences are, where there's a contrast, where there's even positive competition between them. It brings about deeper understanding. It brings about more stability. It brings about growth and innovation. Of course, all those things come about when you have when, when you go smaller and you, you, you decentralize things in that way, it, it creates, it's a divine, it's a brilliant divine structure that God has created, but it's, it's so important for the reason of support and accountability. Because if one or two tribes get off track and start walking away from the God of the Bible, start going down a wrong path, well, there's a lot of healthy pressure from the other tribes to keep them in alignment or to support them, or there's a, there's a tragedy, or there's, there's an event that's happened to one tribe, or the other tribes can help out. Because there's shared identity, there's different, you know, different expressions and different, expre- you know, different um, styles, if you will, or di- slightly different cultural values in each tribe. And that creates a mosaic that's beautiful, but also creates a structure that's very healthy and brings balance. See, when we, when we lose our local smaller tribal identities, our family identities, when we lose that on the small level, we're very weak. We become much weaker, much, much weaker. We actually see this um, in our culture at this time where culturally we, we, we're dominated. You know, more things have gotten centralized. You know, the Internet has centralized us. Social media has centralized us. Lots of things have centralized us. That diminishes local smaller connections, tribal, family, community connections. It diminishes it, and we're weaker because of it. Because you think about your body. If your body gets you know, some kind of disease or, or gets cancerous in some way, it's like the bonds between your cells start breaking down. And so the whole thing can't hold it together anymore. It's those, it's those small bonds that make up the bigger bonds. To be in a small family, to be in a, a smaller tribe, to have that identity is so important. And so how does this map on? How does this Old Testament idea map onto, and Jesus shows it through picking 12, how does it map onto the church? Well, some Christians think, oh, I, I just belong to the, you know, the big church, right? The big C church. I just belong to the body of Christ. I can just, you know, get along being in the universal church. And so they, they float around. Are you a, a floating Christian? Sometimes we have people that just stop in every so often. They just kind of float around. It's like, well, we're fooling ourselves if we don't see the weakness of not going deep with one family, one tribe, really giving our best. Because if you're not committed in going deep in one tribe, where are you serving? Where are you accountable? Where are you giving? Where are you being challenged to grow? 
it's, we're fooling ourselves if we, we think we don't need that tribal identity as well. Of course, you, you never lose the, the overarching identity. We're on the body of Christ. But, man, things have got to go smaller. Things have got to get more intimate. And I want to call out church. I think this week this has been on my heart a lot, thinking about community bonds, community connection. You know, the prayer vigil we did on Thursday really, I think, was a blessing to a lot of people. There was something needed to happen in the community to bring people together. So we've got to share our grief and, and find some hope together, express our burden and our fear over this, but also how do we move forward? What do we do? And I, I think as a church, we, we have an opportunity here, and I wish it wasn't this way. I wish there were other ways that this would come about, but obviously tragedy brings people together. Tragedy, you, you see that, don't you? When, when, there's, when there's conflict, when there's strife, people start banding together. People start realizing we need each other. We need to strengthen these, these smaller bonds that have been disintegrated between us. And so very practically, very specifically, I want to give us one specific idea as a church where we can really intentionally do this. Uh, we started this last year. Um, Edgewater here in the neighborhood does a big yard sale, and people come out for it. A lot of people are you know, selling all their, all their junk, and a lot of people are trying to find their treasures and coming around the neighborhood to get stuff. And we, we used it to, um, it was Jacob Brown's idea, and we used it to raise money to send our youth to camp. So I want to ask you, I think it's June 1st this year, it's coming up, the Edgewater Yard Sale, but it's a way for us to be present in the neighborhood, so bring your junk, we'll sell it, send our kids to youth camp, so do, definitely do that. But also, it's an opportunity to be here and walk around and just meet different people. Even if it's just a brief interaction, even if it's just a brief conversation, just to be present, just to say, hey, we're from the, the church around the corner. Hey, you know, how's everyone doing? You know, our hearts are broken by what happened this year. Because this is going to be something that stays with us for a long time. It's not just a blip, what happened this week. It's not just a blip. It's something that's going to stay with us, where God's going to continue to use it for his glory, even though it's sad, and it's something that we need to remember and that we need to keep fighting for local bonds for, you know, you think about it, it's broken families, it's broken circumstances in people's lives, it's people in pain that then inflict pain upon others. And it's like, as the church, how do we, how can we be here to bring healing in those moments? So we've got to go, and, and that's what the number 12 represents for us here. That's why there's 12. That's why 12 is such an important number because so every time you see 12, you've got to think this is a symbol of local. This is a symbol of keeping things small, of intentionally, no matter how the bigger identity gets, no matter how things grow at the top level, you have to always intentionally get smaller to keep those local bonds going. So whenever you see 12 o'clock, you see a dozen eggs or whatever it is, anytime you see the number 12, think, I've got to get closer to people. I've got to get local. I've got to strengthen those bonds. I've got to be in a tribe. I've got to be connected to people. And this, this, also, you know, this maps on not just to the universal church and the local church idea that, hey, I can't just be a, a Christian floating around in the, in, in the ethos. I've got to be rooted in a church community. But it also maps on to each church as well that we can't just come on Sundays and just clock in and clock out and just kind of avoid people. I tell you, the people that come to church trying to avoid people don't understand what church is. <laughs> just going to throw it out there. 
That's not what church is. We've got to go. That's, that's why we have the dynamic between uh, Sundays and small groups, right? Sundays is, is the big identity. We're all together. The bigger group, everyone's invited. But small groups, hey, that's just for a, that's just for a certain number of people. We limit the, the size of the group so that you can go deeper, so you can get more connected. It's a very Christian impulse to say, make it local, make it more intimate, fight for community, fight for those bonds. And so the Bible repeats to us the number 12 over and over and again. There are certain numbers, you get into numerology, numerology is kind of interesting, always interesting, but there are certain numbers in the Bible that get repeated over and over that have different significance to them. And the number 12 is, is one, it reminds us to go deep with a few, the number 12. So we looked at it that Jacob's sons were 12, these 12 princes of Israel, you could say. Um, but the fountains, the, the fountains of Elam were also 12. The, the, the stones in Aaron's breastplate were 12. The loaves of bread, the bread of the presence in the tabernacle were 12. We see that the spies that were sent into the land of Canaan by Moses were 12. You see the stones of the altar were 12. The stones poured out of the Jordan were 12. The oxen, the, the oxen of the temple were 12. The, the, the jewels in the crown of the woman in the apocalypse are 12. The foundations of the celestial city are 12. And the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem are 12. And then the tree of life at the end of the Bible bears 12 types of fruit, which is very convenient for making fruit salad. But you see 12 repeated over and over and over again. And anytime you see it repeated, it's a sign from God, go intimate, go local, go deep with a few. Don't lose that family identity, that tribal identity that you need. It's so important. And so we see the beginning with Jacob's sons. We see that's the beginning of the Old Testament church. Twelve princes are going to produce twelve families to become twelve tribes. And then Jesus picks these twelve men and goes up the mountain with them. They're the beginning of the New Testament church. And in a magical way, at the very end of time, we see these two twelves, these two groups of twelve coming together as twenty-four elders around the throne. We see it in Revelation chapter four, verse four. This picture of heaven. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. There is a oneness across God's children from all of time, from old to new, coming together through Christ, only in Christ. And the only way that we can all come together is because we got to go deep with Jesus. You've got to go up the mountain, and it's hard to go up the mountain with just a few people. Like, hey, people die on mountains. It's treacherous. It's hard. There's no other way than saying, i got to give up other priorities in my life and climb the mountain with Jesus to go deep with Jesus. And the point we're told in this, pa in this passage here is they're learning. They're going to learn how to preach like Jesus. They're going to learn how to cast out demons like Jesus. Th these are the two big things Jesus did in his ministry. He came to tell a message, and he came to do good works. And a lot of those good works in different ways, but a lot of them were supernatural things. So if we're struggling, and what I love about that is, is that it gets rid of the guesswork. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, what did Jesus do? Let's do that. Let's learn how do we share the message, and how do we do the works of Christ? And all the guesswork is taken out of it, so, so we know. But if we're struggling to do it, then it means, okay, I haven't been discipled. I haven't been with anybody who's shown me how to do it, because that's the only way you learn how to do it. It doesn't matter how many books you read. It doesn't matter how much you think about it or watch YouTube videos about it. Unless you're with somebody who does it, 
you don't know how to do it. It's the student. The student must learn from the master. That's the key, is to go deep into ministry relationships. It's to be around people that know how to do this stuff. That's the model of apprenticeship. It's the best model of learning. Roll up your sleeves, jump in. It's messy. You figure it out. You make all kinds of mistakes, but that's how you learn. Sometimes we're so afraid just to try stuff and do stuff. And also, we want stuff to happen so quick. But you've got to realize, in relationships, stuff can take a lifetime. Relationships take decades to build. And we've got to be willing to go and get into these ministry relationships, these apprenticing relationships where you're saying, yeah, I want to be affected by you. you can't, see, we have these strange ideas of discipleship. It's like, oh, I'm just going to sit around in a circle with a book, and that's going to change my life. So, so for me, here's what changes me. When I, when I get around friends, like my friend, you know, many of you know Mike Sandusky, good friend, pastor friend of mine, has spoken in our church a few times, and uh, was the last guy to preach in our church before the pandemic hit, which we blame him for, actually. Uh, and, uh, but when I get it, Mike, Mike is amazing at, at sharing his faith. Man, he, he's bold as a lion when it comes to, to, to witnessing to people, and just naturally articulating his faith. He's got such a heart to reach people for the gospel. And given to myself, I'm like, you know, of course I want to share my faith. Of course I want to pray for people. And I'll, but it's like, you know, in my mind, it's like I, maybe I talk myself out of it. Maybe I'm like, well, the situation isn't quite right. Or maybe they're not ready. Or, you know, you come up with those, all these excuses. And then I'm, I spend five minutes with Mike, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I? I'm doing it all wrong. I need to share the gospel more with people. I need to be more articulate about it, be more open about it, just be more bold about it. And I, it's being with him that affects me. That's how it works. So... So we've got to be around people who are doing the Jesus stuff in order for us to do the Jesus stuff. So I know in, in my life, I've you know, been privileged to be, to be around people over many years uh, who really value prayer. And, and so that, that value, I don't know that I'm very good at praying. I don't think I'm very good at praying. But, but, but it is a value that I think we have, and I have, because, I've been, because that's, that's rubbed off on me from other, being around other people who's like, we've got to pray. I, mean, I remember having a conversation with, with a pastor years ago, a different friend of mine, who was like, yeah, I've got lots of people in my church who want us to be praying more and do prayer meetings and stuff, but we ain't got time for that. We've got, we've got all these other programs and ministries we've got to be doing, so we just, I just said no to them. And I'm just like, okay, all right. You know, I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't sound like kind of like what Jesus did, you know? That sounds a little un-Jesus-y to me, a little de-Jesus, a little anti, I don't know, it's something going wrong there. So I'm like, I'm like you know, if, to be around, to learn how to pray, to learn how to do supernatural ministry, to learn how to fight demons like Jesus is, and to do spiritual warfare, you've got to be around people who have great faith and know how to pray and, know, and value it, Right? And, and we actually, what we see here is, so, you know, the idea of, of you know, demons and spiritual warfare, that kind of stuff. Sometimes, uh, you know, people can get kind of hokey about that kind of thing. But, hey, we live in a spiritual reality. Demons are real. They have power. Um, we, can't, we, we can't deny it. It's in the Bible. They haven't gone anywhere since, you know, where have the demons gone since the time of the New Testament, right? They, 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 they've gone to another planet. You know, they, you know, they're on an island somewhere. Like, they're still around. And um, we have to fight them. And, but but here, here's the way they work in, in, in our context, in our, our culture, I think. Because in other cultures that are more spiritually minded, it's more apparent, it's more in your face. You see demonic stuff happening more directly because people, um, 
people believe in that stuff, so they're not, they're not afraid to, to, to approach that. But the way, it's more hidden here. It's more subtle here. And actually, you see it happening. Uh, we read it, the last few verses here in the passage we read, what happened to Jesus? His family, his family, his mother, Mary, the mother of God, and his brothers, James probably, who later became an apostle, but not at this point, thought he was insane, thought he'd gone out of his mind, and they came to seize him. This is the main kind of spiritual warfare that we face. That in local, in, either in local church settings, within the church, or even in your own family, Satan knows how important the local bonds are. He knows how important it is to be one of 12, to, be, to go small. He knows how that's where the magic happens. He knows that's what holds everything together. If you keep those local bonds tight, the whole identity holds together. You destroy those local bonds, the whole thing falls apart. He knows it. And so he attacks us at the most crucial place that he could attack us, which is in our internal relationships, in the church or in our family. Isn't it so sad? Some churches completely split, divide, factions in churches. That's horrible. It happens. Families. I mean, there are some families that don't talk to members who don't talk to each other for decades or never reconnect because of offenses, because of barriers, because of things that happen. Satan is winning when that happens, when those things break in that way. That's spiritual warfare. And we have to be with Jesus. We have to be apprenticed by Jesus. We have to go up to the mountain with Jesus and to receive from him and understand from him that we've got to be ready for that. We can't be naive to it. You have to know that if you go deep with a few, I mean, Jesus had Judas on his team. Sometimes we think, oh, I did something wrong. Uh, somebody close to me hurt me in some way or did something. Or Satan got in and divided us. Oh, it's on me. It's like, well, Jesus had Judas. So, you know, we can relax a little bit. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. We have to be ready. We can't be naive. We have to be ready for it. Yes, some of the people I'm closest to, not all of them, but some of them sometimes will say and do very painful things. And it will be Satan working through them. They may not know it. We need to be careful about how we talk about that. But it is Satan trying to divide. We have to be ready for it. And the key is, how do we respond to it? Because it will happen. How do we respond to it? Because if we haven't gone deep with a few, we'll be unable to have the strength we need and the wisdom we need and the collective power we need to actually weather those storms. Because the tighter you are with a few, the more you can survive those kind of spiritual attacks. The weaker the bonds are, when those attacks come, everything crumbles apart. And that, that's a lesson. I feel like God's been trying to drum that lesson into my head. But you know, you can't go on Jesus' mission without being deeply rooted in Jesus' tribe. You cannot go on Jesus' mission without being deeply rooted in Jesus' tribe. And in the wisdom of Jesus, he makes us go deep with people who are deeply different to us, to grow our character, to stretch us. So with the disciples here, we've got a couple of characters. We've got a few characters here. We've got, you've got Peter, Peter and John. Peter is impulsive, emotional, blunt. On the other hand, John, what is John like? John is quiet, contemplative, and poetic, right? Gospel writer John is like, Jesus is the light, man. Totally, you know, Peter's like cutting ears off. I mean, these guys are like totally different to each other. Can you imagine how, can you imagine the relational tension? 
they're probably, I'm sure they're mad at each other constantly. What about Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector? Oh boy. Simon was a fiery, fierce political activist, probably a very violent type of activist, so not like a snowflake type or a keyboard warrior type who's like fierce in words, but you know, not in reality. Um, but, but, but more, you know, maybe he's an anarchist or, or you know, libertarian type or something, something because he hates taxes. Taxes, you know, no, you've got to get rid of all those, you know, taxation is, is evil, right? He is partnered with Matthew, the tax collector. <laughs> I mean, they would have been at each other's throats. What that means for us is in our day and age, put it, put it in our day and age, because you you it's funny to look back, you know, go, oh, 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 those guys, yeah. Oh, they would have, oh, they learned to get along though, right? You have to think about it for us. What does it mean for us? That means patriotic, MAGA-loving people, as well as anti-colonial progressive types, can learn to get along only in Jesus. You have to, though, you have to be willing to say, I'm going to go up the mountain with Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen up the mountain, but Jesus is calling me up the mountain. And if I go up with him, I've got to be willing to embody the message of grace, to get it into my heart. And I've got to learn how spiritual warfare works, how demons are trying to divide us. And if I can learn those two things from Jesus, then any relationship can be formed and any bond can be strengthened. And we can avoid the trappings that our culture has fallen into at this time, where the 12 has been destroyed, the local has been destroyed. And how can you do it? How can you do it if you don't make it a priority? How can it happen if church is not a priority for you? How can it happen if small groups are not a priority for you? It cannot happen. It will not happen. This is part of the salvation. I mean, Jesus saves us of our sin, but part of the salvation to our world and to our own country is the wisdom of God saying, this is how you get close. This is how you build people together. This is how you deal with some of societal ills. It's bottom up. It comes from the people. And yes, the people in your group of 12 are going to annoy you. That's the point. I mean, there's a couple of bozos in here. You know, the brothers, right? Bo Andrew, Jesus, or whatever the word is that Jesus calls them, sons of thunder. These two these two morons, they, they wanted to, uh, that was a little harsh, all right, forgive me for that, but, but they, these two guys, they wanted to, uh, at one point, in another part of the Gospels, they, they want to bring down, they, they say to Jesus, you know, should, should we call down fire on these people over here, like just burn people up? <laughs> what is, I mean, you know, in, in, in any church ministry, there's always a couple of mental people, and, and they're, they're, these, you know, and sometimes I'm the mental person, and, you know. We can all be a little mental sometimes. They wanted to call fire down on people. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Jesus, instead of rejecting them, instead of getting annoyed with them, well, he did get annoyed sometimes with them, but instead of staying annoyed with them, he gives them a nickname. I love this. We've got to learn how to do this, how to do, how to do the Jesus nickname thing. We've got, we've got to figure out how to do this because he, he calls them sons of thunder. He does it with Peter as well. Peter... His name was Simon, and, you know, Peter's this hothead, he's this, you know, um, strong-headed individual, and instead of using that against him, what does he call him? He calls him a rock. It's like Rocky, it's almost like a, a pet name or something, like just 
adopted a dog from the hound or something. It's like the pound, the hound of the pound, I don't know, a hound from the pound. I'm saying words, I don't know what they mean. Jesus gives these, these affectionate nicknames to them that actually are ways to reframe their weaknesses. Because you could be like, oh yeah, Peter's such a hothead. What a, what a goon. What a, what a thick, you've got such a thick brain. Like what a, you know, and Jesus is like, yep, he is, but he's, you know, he's a rock. You know, and these guys, you know, these brothers that want to call down fire on people. You're like, ah, you know, we're not here to incinerate people. You know, you could be, and Jesus is like, you know, it's right, they're, they're sons of thunder. I love this because if there's somebody you struggle with, somebody you feel annoyed at, find the term of affection that speaks value to them, that reframes the, the perceived weakness. And you have to be very careful about this because sometimes we, 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 we come up with you know, names for each other that are really like slight digs at somebody. Don't do that. If somebody's bothered by a name, don't use it. You know. Uh, but, but maybe there's a way to get affectionately close to somebody. And, and, and actually, you can do this in your own relationship with God. Ask Jesus to give you a personal nickname. Because it's in your most weakest moments, in your darkest moments, in your moments of greatest failure, where an affectionate name from God can help you understand that even in your greatest failing, He still has affection for you. My Christian nickname is Admiral. I was trying to convince my kids for many years to call me Admiral. It makes me feel good about myself. And, uh, but, but also, uh, also it, it actually pokes a little bit of fun because I'm, I'm hopelessly seasick. So I could never, never actually be an admiral. But these verses here, it says, Jesus called those whom he desired. He called those whom he desired. God desires you. It's not those who can do a lot of good stuff. It's not those who are really talented or really gifted. It's not those with a lot of money. It's not those who are going to make a name for themselves. It's those whom he desired. Jesus desires you. And he can make something out of you. He cares about your talents. He cares about your resources. Yeah, he cares about all that stuff, but he cares about you. He desires you. And this is the gospel message. This is the message of grace, that it's not what you bring to God that can save you. It's that God desires you that saves you and that he made that sacrifice. He made that offering on the cross, which is the only thing. And he did it because he desired you. Do you know that? It's, we've, we've said it, our alpha group that we go through, it said several times, but it said in this way, that if you were the only person on earth, Jesus still would have died for you because that's how much he desires you. He desires you. That's the gospel message. What happened to our group of friends, the Inklings? And how does it relate to what we've been talking about today, this disconnection between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien? What happened to them? Well, Lewis had been a little bit mistreated at his position at Oxford. He'd been kind of held back. People there had actually been somewhat jealous of him and resentful of him because he had been such a successful Christian author. And uh, so that had actually held him back in his career, and he had a lot of issues there at Oxford. And 
Tolkien, even though there had been this division, even though there had been a drifting apart, a cooling off of their relationship, Tolkien saw this from a distance. And he lobbied for his friend to get a position at Cambridge. They offered it to Lewis twice, and he turned it down twice. There were some real barriers to him being able to actually take the position, so he turned it down twice. So Tolkien met with his friend to understand why he was turning this down, because this would be so much better for him, give him a lot more freedom, and secure lots of room, and specifically rooms for his dependents at Cambridge, and to move his entire library of books from Oxford to Cambridge. And with those things taken care of, Tolkien was able to convince and change Lewis's mind to receive the position. And it revealed something about their friendship, about how much Tolkien still cared for his friend, but also how Lewis was willing to change his mind and ultimately agree with Tolkien that, yes, this would be a better situation for me. Instead of the inklings that they could be a bit rough at times, but they were playful. Their interactions in the culture and their group was peppered with teasing, with some insults here or there, some wit, some sarcasm, and some humor. But ultimately, not personal attacks. It was iron sharpening iron. It was honest. And the reason the group worked so well is because they met frequently and because they were also different to each other. They were all so different, but yet they kept meeting week after week. And C.S. Lewis says this about the Inklings. He says, he is lucky beyond desert, which means lucky beyond deserving, to be in such company, especially when the whole group is together, each bringing out all that is best, wisest, or funniest in all the others. Those are the golden sessions. When four or five of us, after a hard day's walk, have come to our inn, when our slippers are on, our feet spread out towards the blaze, and our drinks are at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk. It was a spiritual experience. We need wildly and fundamentally different kinds of people in our lives. When we band together with people who are different to us, we are changed. It's not easy. It is messy. But especially for Christians, in the common pursuit of Jesus, as we pursue Jesus together, we get transformed. Are you willing to become one of 12? To take your place in a small community, in a group, that says we're going to go deep, we're going to be forged into a fellowship of the ring led by Aslan. <laughs> if, if we aren't willing to care, to learn to care about people completely different to us, can we even say that we follow Jesus? Let's, be, let's have a big vision. Let's care about our whole city. Let's care about the world, the globe. Let's care about the Christian message going forward. Let's, let's have that big Christian identity and, and, and be excited about that. But let's also keep it tight. Let's go local and go deep. Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what we're called to do.